Blaise Pascal was a 17th century mathematician and philosopher. Uh, he has a, a well-known work called Pensees. And in this, he proposed a threefold strategy for commending Christianity to those who do not yet believe. And I quote, The cure is, first, show that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of respect and reverence. Next, make it attractive. Make good men wish it were true. And then, third, show that it is. End quote. So Blaise Pascal says to, we need to show Christianity is respectable. In other words, we don't have to turn off our brains. Next, we show Christianity is desirable. We don't have to ignore the deep longings of our heart. And only then do we show how Christianity maps on to the reality of the world. So in other words, we need to, we need to show that the Christian faith, the gospel isn't just true, but it is good and it is beautiful. And so while I know many of you here, I don't know all of you personally, but I do know something about you. I know that you carry burdens. I know that you feel brokenness. I know that you long to be truly known and deeply loved. I know that while there are things in this world you enjoy, you yearn for a better world. One where injustice is gone, everything permeated by what is right and good. A world without hate and enemies, just peace and flourishing. A world without sickness and death, only celebration and joy. Deep down, we all want the same thing, don't we? But the question is, how do we get it? And our text for this morning begins to tell us, it points us to the path, not just what is true, but what our hearts were made to treasure. So as I mentioned, this morning we'll be in Psalm 8. And so we've been working through the books of, uh, the, the book of Psalms. If, you, if you're new to the Bible, uh, the book of Psalms is a collection of 150 poems or songs. Uh, but they're not like the radio station's top 100 that just happen to randomly be placed together. No, the book of Psalms, like the rest of Scripture, has a theological shape. It's one of the things we've been trying to emphasize as we've walked through Psalms one after the other. That the Psalms connect to and flow from each other. You'll remember Psalm 1 begins by inviting us into the blessed life. And then you can look there in your Bibles and you'll see that Psalm 2 ends with that same invitation. The blessed life. Psalm 1, the blessed life is found by meditating on God's word. Psalm 2, the blessed life comes as we kiss the Son, Jesus, and take refuge in Him. And then Psalms 3 through 7, this is exactly what we see. We see King David remembering God's Word and taking refuge in God's Son, the promised Messiah. In the midst of whatever David faces, in his pain of life, he relies on the promises of God and sings praises to his King. Look at the end of Psalm 7. We hear the chorus from David's lips. Look at verse 17. I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. Now look at the beginning of Psalm 9. David continues to sing. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O most high. Psalm 7 ends... 
Psalm 9 begins with David saying he will sing praise to the Lord's most high name. And what do we find in Psalm 8? David singing praise to the Lord's most high name. Listen to Psalm 8 as I read it for us. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, it's probably just a musical term, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also beasts of the field. The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. The main idea of this psalm is found in verse 1 and 9. If you didn't catch it, there it is. It's repeated. It begins and ends with the same words. Those words book in this passage. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There's the main idea. How majestic is the Lord's name in all the earth. And then in verses 2 through 8, David David unpacks why his name is majestic. But I want to again, just by considering how majestic is the Lord's name. Notice that that statement isn't a question. He's not like how majestic as if he's trying to take a measurement of how majestic the Lord is. He's exclaiming. He's marveling. And notice the first words from David's lips are, Oh, Lord. And this isn't new to us. David has called upon the name of the Lord nearly 30 times in these first couple of Psalms. In fact, it is the first word or one of the first words in Psalm 3, 5, 6, 7, and now 8. And you'll notice in your Bibles, the word Lord is in all capitals. This is a translation of Yahweh, uh, not a generic name for God, but the the personal covenant name of God that he gave when he first revealed himself to his people in Exodus chapter 3. And Yahweh means I am. So God is saying, I am who I am. No beginning, no end. Perfect in every way, absolute and almighty. Everything, everywhere, at all times is dependent upon the Lord. The God who is, the God who will be. And David says, O Lord, our Lord. No, he's not stuttering. He's simply saying that second word, Lord, you'll notice is not in all caps. It's the word Adonai. It means the word king or ruler. And so David is saying the Lord, the one true self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal God is our king. And notice the corporateness of this. It's not just my Lord, though David says that at times. In this instance, it's our Lord. And if we go back to the superscript, who did he write this psalm for? Who did he write it for? The choir master. This is written for the church to sing together. This is an invitation, a call to exclaim the Lord's majesty together. Yes, we can sing the Lord's praise in the shower. 
We can sing it as we get ready for church. We can sing it as we listen to Spotify with our earbuds in. But there's something about the corporateness of praise that brings fuller expression to the Lord's majesty. When we sing together, how majestic is the Lord's name. When we see that, that sister, that brother who's struggling with hardships, and yet they're raising their hands, praise the Lord. It does something to us. It extols the Lord's majesty in a way that we can't do alone. And beloved, this is why we need to regularly gather with the church. It's a megaphone to the world and to our own hearts of the Lord's majesty. We often need to be reminded of the majesty, the splendor, the beauty of the name of the Lord. That is his character. That is his nature. That is his essence. And one of the primary ways that we do that is by gathering with the church, reading God's word, singing, praying, praising, fellowshipping. See, when we try to live the Christian life alone, maybe tangentially connected to gospel community, the Lord's majesty becomes truncated down. It appears to shrink down to the size of our own life. But his majesty goes beyond, well beyond that. How far does it go? Look at the text. In all the earth, you have set your glory above the heavens. There is no place in all the earth, there is no place in or above the heavens where God is not Yahweh, the absolute one. There is no place in heaven or on earth, the Lord is not majestic, filled with beauty, splendor, and glory. Psalm 8 exclaims, there's one true God. God is not ecumenical. There is one true God. And he deserves to be praised. No true rivals. Only competitors who fail. He is supreme in every way. Absolute in every place. Everything, reality itself, is centered on him. Did you notice this entire psalm is centered on him? It begins with O Lord, it ends with O Lord, and I count at least 15 times in the midst of this psalm about who the Lord is and what the Lord is doing. It's all centered on the Lord. This psalm is meant to draw our gaze upon an adoration and worship and majesty of the Lord. It's the main point of this psalm. And how does the Lord show his majesty? Through his greatness through his goodness, and through his grace. That's what we'll see as we'll unpack this psalm. Let's look at each one of those. Behold the majesty of the Lord in his greatness. Look again at verse 2. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. This seems like such an odd transition, doesn't it? David goes from talking about and extolling the infinite beauty of the Lord to talking about infants and babies. We're like, what is the connection here? How does this connect to the majesty of the Lord? And here's why. Because it shows the Lord's greatness, particularly his strength through weakness. If we were to think of the most helpless, vulnerable Weak people, right? There's one right here. As sweet as she is, she can do nothing by herself. She has no strength of her own, entirely dependent. 
If we were to form a mighty army to defeat an enemy, it would not be an infantry of infants. We can testify, yes, their screams are sometimes deafening and they might seem defeating. But this is not a good plan to fight mighty enemies. But this is God's plan to still the enemy. Notice the connection. Out of the mouths of babies, why? To still or to silence the enemy. Uh, There is some level of literalness to this saying. As we'll see in a minute, Jesus applies this verse to himself when he receives the praise of children. There's something about the sweet praise of children that silences those who oppose God. Right? So the, the mightiest arrows of Satan are no match for a child joyfully singing songs and reciting memory verses they learned at VBS. It is no match. The darkest forces of evil cannot overcome the light of Jesus being rehearsed by the kids right now in Restoration Kids. The shouts of the world are quieted as a mom holds the little one in their arms, teaching them, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. God seems to silence his enemies through the sweet praises of little ones. And yet I think there's more. I think David is highlighting a larger point. In in poetic fashion, he's telling us God's ways are not our ways. His strength comes through weakness. That's how majestic he is. How we read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 through 29. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. This is God's ways. And it's interesting to note, the word strength in verse 2 first shows up in Exodus 15. This is the song that Moses wrote his people to sing after they were delivered from slavery to Egypt. And how did that deliverance start? Did it not start with a baby placed in the Nile River? And remember, the Nile River was supposed to be the place of death. So beginning with a baby, God is so strong, he used what was meant for death to defeat his enemy and to bring deliverance for his people. And it's clear in this psalm, David is reflecting on Genesis. So perhaps we could push back even further, maybe to Genesis 3.15, where God makes the promise that the serpent, his enemy, will be crushed by the seed of the woman, a baby. Perhaps we could push forward to another baby who will finally come and fully defeat God's enemies. Psalm 8 is telling us the Lord and his greatness uses the weak, the vulnerable, the helpless as the means of his majestic triumph over his enemies. And his work continues today. Is this not the church? The Lord chooses what is weak, vulnerable, considered foolish and unworthy by the world to make his name known. A motley group of ragtag sinners pushing back the forces of evil, not by our strength, not by our creativity, not by our ingenuity, but by grace. The Lord is using our weakness to show his strength. So beloved, take heart. 
Your weakness is the very means the Lord will use to show his greatness and his majesty. As scripture tells us, we are nothing more than cracked clay jars. And there is no need to pretend otherwise. And yet, it's not our weakness, our struggles, our hardships that define us. Right? They're not all that we talk about. They are merely the occasion to display the surpassing glory of the Lord. His majesty. That's what defines us. And so for my non-Christian friends, if you find yourself weak and vulnerable, if you are helpless and fragile, welcome. Stick around. You'll quickly find out we're not all that impressive. But we know the one who is. We might be weak, but we can take you to one who is strong. Don't feel like you have to hide your flaws and weaknesses, your struggle and your shame before you come to greet the Lord. Those are the very things that endear you to him. We'd love to introduce you to this Lord. Behold the Lord's majesty in his unexpected greatness. But that's not the only way this psalm reveals the majesty of the Lord. We also see it in his undeserved goodness. Behold the majesty of the Lord in his undeserved goodness. Uh, Verse 3, David turns his attention back to the heavens. But you'll notice it's not just the heavens. It's what? Say it out. It is your heavens. The heavens belong to God. The moon and the stars he set in place. And this isn't difficult for the great I am. It's not like he had to break back and work. Oh, this is so hard. Notice what the text says. The the heavens are the work of your... The heavens are the work of your... Fingers. Now, again, this is poetic language. God doesn't have fingers. Right? It's, It's using what we know and struggling to define how majestic the Lord is. And here's what David is saying. The host of heavens, the universe, is nothing but a finger painting with divine digits. David didn't have access to NASA and images from the Hubble telescope. He didn't know exactly how big the host of heavens is. And neither do we. Uh, Scientists have some some estimations, right? So as I read this week, uh, they, they estimate the universe contains approximately a septillion stars. That's a one followed by 24 zeros. That's big. And just one of those stars is what we call the sun. And NASA says it's a medium-sized star. Guess how many Earths fit into the volume of the sun? How many? Over a million. Over a million Earths fit into the volume of the sun. And the sun is just one star in the Milky Way galaxy. And the Milky Way galaxy is just one of an estimated 170 billion galaxies in the universe. To put some scale on that, if the Milky Way galaxy itself were the size of a football field, our entire solar system would be the size of one grain of sand. The earth almost so small it's unmeasurable. 
And this is just one of billions of galaxies. And for God to create the universe, billions of galaxies, each filled with billions of stars, it took about as much effort as a toddler sticking his fingers in some paint and putting it on paper. How majestic is the Lord? And now we can understand David's question. But before we even get to his question, notice that it's only after the pondering the glory and the greatness of God, David asks, what is man? The simple truth is this. You cannot rightly answer the question, what is man, until you first answer the question, who is God? And David has done that. He knows who God is, and so he asks in verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. This isn't, David isn't doubting. David isn't consumed with worry and anxiety. He's filled with awe and humility. And here's why. David knows the right answer to his question is nothing. We are one of an estimated 8 billion people currently alive on the earth. We live for a short time, on a small rock in a little galaxy at the far end of the universe. All things considered from our perspective, we are insignificant. But remember the majesty of the Lord. His ways are not our ways. In his eyes, we are significant. David knows the Lord is not just great, but he is good. He, he looks up at the grandeur of the night sky, overcome by the glory and the greatness of the Lord. And he feels small and it feels good. Why? Because this is the way that it's supposed to be. No one, at least in their right mind, goes outside, stares up at the moon, counts the stars, finds the big dipper and says, I am a really big deal. We don't do that. We feel small, and yet it feels so right and good. Why? Why does stand, feeling small in front of something so awe-inspiring feel so good? Because it points to the ultimate reason we were made. We were made for someone so much greater and bigger than us. But not just someone so much greater and bigger, but someone who is good. Do you notice the progression of verse 4? God is mindful of us, the text says, and God cares for us. From God in thought to God in action. It's not just that God is aware of our existence theoretically. He's attentive and shows compassion to us individually. See, God is not so big and remote that he's removed from the details of life. He has not forgotten you. He's not too, too busy spinning stars and sustaining the universe to, to, to forget you. This is how good God is. We are the objects of his undeserved goodness. Not because of our merit, but because of his majesty. Christian brothers and sisters, these truths apply especially to you. In Christ, God loves you and he likes you. Get this. The one who hung the stars in the sky sings over your soul. I'm not making that up. That's not just poetic. Zephaniah 3. 
The Lord, your God in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Amen. Isaiah 62. The Lord delights in you. In Christ, beloved, there is something about you that thrills the Lord. He's not just great. He is good. He does not continually think about his children with low-grade disappointment. God is not a subpar golfer who needs to take mulligans. He needs no do-overs. He has set his affection upon you in Christ. And nothing can separate you from that love. Nothing. There's nothing that you have done. There's nothing that can be done to you that can steal or reduce God's affection for you. He knows your wounds and he hurts and he cares. He knows your shame and your struggle and he's committed to your good. Some of you are having financial difficulty. God cares. Some of you are dealing with marital conflict. God sees. Some of you are having a hard time with parents or friends or relationships. God listens. Some of you are wrestling with unmet godly desires. God hears your pleas. Some of you are dealing with sudden tragedy and loss. God does not forget his promises. I know that it doesn't always feel like that. In fact, just just flip over to Psalm 13. David knows that. I mean, David's just talking here. God, you're so mindful of me. You care. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? The Bible knows your life. God knows. The fact that he included Psalm 13 shows that he's mindful of you. That he cares for you. And I've said often that while our feelings are real, they aren't always true. Our feelings might tell us God does not care, but his word said he does. And we know he does. Here's why. See, David was able to look up at the stars hung in the sky, and he declared, what am I that you are mindful of me? We're able to look at God's son, Jesus, hung on a cross. And we say, God, what am I that you are mindful of me? We know God cares because he sent his son to redeem and rescue his children. He's that good of a God. Behold the majesty of the Lord and his undeserved goodness. We see that in the cross, but we also see it in how God created us. That's where David goes in verse 5. Verse 5. Look at verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. In this psalm, again, David is looking back at creation, Genesis 1, and we arrive at the pinnacle of his creation. And notice what David says. You made him. God made me. God made you. Uh, we're, We're created by God himself. And how did he make us? A little lower than the heavenly beings. And notice David does not say we are a little higher than the beasts. No, we're not just evolved beasts. He says we're a little lower than the heavenly. 
to find out who we are, we don't look down at the animals around us. We look up to God himself. And what did God do? When the Lord created humanity, he, he bestowed something on us. He, he crowned something on us. And what does the text say? He crowned us with, with glory and honor. But verse 1 tells us all glory belongs to the Lord. All honor belongs to the Lord. So what's going on here? God crowns us with what is rightly his. In poetic fashion, David is affirming what we read in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We're created in God's image. As I've told many of you before, as my, as my daughters have grown up, we've, we've done a catechism, uh, which is memorized answers to specific questions. And a couple of the questions that we've asked is, question, how and why did God make us? Answer, God made us male and female in his own image. Question, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Answer, to have the ability to know who God is and the responsibility to show what God is like. It's exactly what David is saying here. Do you see it? Verse 5 notes our dignity. And then verses 6 through 8, our responsibility. See, this truth is what separates us from every other created thing. Go, go read Genesis 1 this afternoon. Even if you've read it a hundred times, go read it this afternoon. And you'll see after each day, God creates and he says, it is good. He creates and it's good. Then the sixth day, he creates humanity in his own image. And he says, it is very good. Why? What's now very good? Behold the majesty of the Lord in his very goodness. Humanity created in his image, male and female. Where do you look for your identity? It's a big topic in the world right now. How do you identify? Where do you look? How do you define what's most true and foundational about who you are? David tells us where to look. We don't look down trying to find our identity at animals. We don't find our identity by looking into ourselves. We find our identity by looking up, gladly receiving it from God. Who you are in the most significant sense isn't defined by the culture that's constantly changing. It's crowned on us by God who never changes. It's the good pleasure of the Lord and his wise purposes to create us in his one image, two genders, to display his majesty. This is what David is reflecting on. This means that every person from the moment of conception until their last natural breath has inherent dignity and equal Worth. This means that our identity isn't created or changed by us. It is crowned on us by God. Your life has purpose. Your life has value. You do not have to create it.
This is so contrary to what the world around us says. You have the late atheist Stephen Hawking who wrote, everything that happens, good or bad, must be viewed as simply the result of random, pitiless indifference. Or an atheist before him wrote, man is but the outcome of accidental collections of atoms. How comforting. Isn't that the world you want for someone just to tell you everything is random, pitiless indifference, and you're just a random collection of atoms? Or perhaps on a more personal level, our culture shouts, you need to make and remake your identity. At least as long as it affirms the narrative of the day. And if not, you're canceled. Do you see what this means? If we are not created by God in his image, crowned with glory and honor, human beings do not have inherent dignity and equal worth. We're no different than dogs and dolphins. We're just another mammal or a machine. If we are not created by God in his image, then our identity shifts as quickly as your social media newsfeed. Whether implicit or explicit, it's this worldview that leads to believing we get to arbitrarily arbitrarily choose when life begins and when it ends. It's this worldview that denies or creates an image of God. It's this worldview that reduces the core of who you are, the most important thing about you, to who you sleep with. It's this worldview that treats immigrants like pawns rather than real persons. It's this worldview that leads some to believe it's okay to treat others like property instead of God's image bearers. It's this worldview that denies we're creating the image of God that believes it's okay to hate and denigrate those who aren't like you. And that world isn't beautiful. That world is heartbreaking. That world is without hope. But thanks be to God, we don't have a world like that. We have a world filled with the majesty of the Lord and all his goodness. Every human being is created in the image of God, not just Christians, every human being. So regardless of age, size, ethnicity, Religion, gender, intellect, ability. Every human being has inherent dignity, value, and worth. And as a church, we get to display the undeserved goodness of the Lord. As we remind each other of our true identity, who we really are. And as we help our neighbors See just how majestic he is. They don't have to run the rat race of the world and try to change their identity to shift into the narrative of the day. No, there's something greater. There's something more beautiful. There's something more stable. There's something more secure. That's the goodness of the Lord. That in his goodness, all of us are crowned with glory and honor. Our deepest identity and 
longing for happiness are found in him, not the affirmation of others. In God, to behold, beloved, behold the majesty of the Lord and his goodness. And his goodness doesn't end there. It keeps on going. Look at verses 6 through 8. David begins to reflect on dominion that we have. And he's surely reflecting on Genesis 1.28. Where we read there, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's exactly what David is reflecting on. Right? God created humanity with a derived dominion. We were made to represent him and fill the earth with glad-hearted worshipers, stewarding all of creation in a way that reflects his majesty. But here's the problem. The Bible doesn't stop in Genesis 1 and 2. We have Genesis 3, and we see how humanity uses our dominion. Not to rule, but to ruin. Instead of ruling over creation, Adam and Eve listen to creation, the serpent. They ignore God's greatness and try to make themselves great. They don't believe that God is truly good. They believe God is holding out on him. So they, they doubt and deny his love. And now all of creation groans under the weight of sin. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. We've talked about that. It's filled with disease and death, abuse and addiction on rampant. Sickness and sadness are too common. Injustice and racism abounds. And the list goes on. And we are not the way we are supposed to be. Just like Adam and Eve, we rebel against God. We disobey his word. We doubt his love. Instead of praising him for his glory, we try to rob it and make ourselves look great. Left to ourselves, we are God's enemy. And it's as if Psalm 8 leaves us asking, how will God defeat his enemies and not destroy us? Psalm 8 leaves us asking, will there ever be a day when all things are once again under the feet of men or any man? Well, maybe David isn't just looking back. Perhaps he's looking forward. Perhaps David doesn't have mankind in mind, but maybe a specific man in mind. Maybe David isn't just reflecting on the Lord's greatness and his goodness, but also his grace. And remember, beloved, grace is not a thing. Grace is a person. Behold the majesty of the Lord in his grace, the one to whom this psalm points. This psalm is referenced at least four times in the New Testament. All with direct connections to Christ himself. We're going to look at two. The first, Matthew 21. If you have a Bible, flip over to Matthew 21. It'll be to the right. We see this in Matthew 21. Starting verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him, that is to Jesus, in the temple. And he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribe saw the wonderful things that he did, the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? So Jesus is in the temple. He's healing the blind and the lame. Maybe a picture of the restoration of all things is the way it's supposed to be. And the children begin to praise Jesus. Hosanna, save us, son of David. You're the promised one of God. And the religious leaders, they understand what these children are doing. Praising Jesus as if he's God. And they're saying, he's blaspheming. Jesus, tell them to stop. Don't you hear what they're saying? Jesus responds, yeah, 
I hear what they're saying. Have you never read Psalm 8, you religious leaders? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. In quoting this passage, Jesus tells his accusers who they are and who he is. They're the enemy of God. And he is God himself who has come to receive all praise, even from the little ones. Behold the majesty of the Lord in the person of Christ. He is God in the flesh. And what did he do? Flip over a few more pages to Hebrews chapter 2. Starting in verse 5. Hebrews 2. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. He's like, I know, I know the Bible says it somewhere. I'm not sure exactly where, but in the Bible, y'all ever done that? Like in the Bible, I know it says. Well, be comforted. Hebrews says that too. But then he quotes it perfectly. So, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And Psalm 8. Now the author of Hebrews applies it. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that, the, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Do you see how Hebrews interpret Psalm 8? Everything is already in subjection to Jesus. I know we don't see it. It's already not yet, but we do see Jesus. He is the Son of Man. He is the one who's been crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of how great and supreme he is? No. Through weakness. Through death. Behold the majesty of the Lord. He puts everything in subjection, not by strength, but by weakness. And it all began how? The weakness of a baby. Jesus came helpless, weak, why? Just as Psalm 8 tells us to still, to silence, to defeat God's enemy. The seed of the woman, the offspring promised in Genesis 3.15 comes to us in Christ. He permanently weds himself to human flesh because he's mindful of us, because he cares for us to do what we could not do. The first Adam and every one of us fail, but Jesus is the second Adam who perfectly obeys. But he still dies. Why? So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is, this is for everyone who turns from their sin and confesses their rebellion. For everyone who admits left to themselves, they are God's enemy. See, apart from Jesus, death is ours still to swallow on our own. And here's the truth. It will take all of eternity for you to choke it down. But everyone who trusts in Christ, that he took our brokenness, he bore our shame, he paid the penalty for our sin by his death. And here's the soul-staggering news. Jesus didn't just taste death. He chewed it up and he spit it out. Amen? He crushed death. He did not stay dead. He rose again. He defeated the enemy. He silenced The Avenger. 
And now Jesus tasted death by grace, not works. By grace, we might receive new life and new loves. And one day he's returning soon to finally and fully put everything in subjection to himself. To restore and reorder the world so that it might be just as Psalm 8 describes. A world where we perfectly exercise and enjoy our God-given dominion. Stewarding creation and the splendor and majesty of the Lord together. One big choir in heaven. Enjoying God. Enjoying each other, enjoying creation. Imagine the feast and the festivals, the songs and the stories. Fully awakened to the beauty of Christ, enjoying creation, art, sports, relationship, food, drink, everything else, always as it was meant to be. Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this what you want? And it all comes to us by grace, through faith in Christ, for those who repent. And believe in him. See, Jesus shows what it is to be truly human. To live in love as God always meant it to be. So beloved, through the Holy Spirit, you're being remade into the image of Jesus. One degree of glory to another. Which means you're becoming more and more human. All that it means to be, all God created you to be. And as a church, we get to show what this is like, what it means to live in the majesty of God, displaying all that it means to be truly human. And the mission hasn't changed. Fill the world with worshipers. We might say, go make disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ in Washington, D.C. and beyond. This is what we do. And we do it together. We do it together that we might sing and say together, oh, Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Beloved, behold God's majesty and his unexpected greatness, his undeserved goodness, and his unmerited grace. Behold the majesty of the Lord in Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name? God, God, remove the temptation. I feel it in my own preaching to, to, to give a list of applications for things that we go do. Remove that in this moment and just let us stand in awe of who you are. Help us marvel as David did. Help us marvel at creation at the cross, at our Christ. And we might live with a worldview permeated knowing we have value and worth in Christ and that will never change. No one can ever take it away from us. Give us grace, God, to minister to others that are hurting, that are broken, that are confused about identity, that we might humbly come alongside them and love them as we point them to Christ. God, how great thou art. Help our souls sing of your majesty. Amen. Amen.